Well, welcome. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It is good to have you. Good to be with you guys this morning. Looking forward to uh, studying God's Word with you. Uh, We just started a series going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew probably through the end of the summer, and so we're excited to just work our way through God's Word together, and we truly want to set a priority on letting God's Word be the thing that informs and, and transforms our time together, and so looking forward to that. Also, I'm excited about uh, so I'm excited about doing that. But I'm also really excited about the cruise that my wife and I are going on for our 10 year anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks. Really, really excited about that. It's going to be seven glorious nights of childless, winterless vacation in the Caribbean. It's gonna it's just incredible. Anyway, okay, so I'm really excited about that, right? And so I've been trying to lose a little weight. In, in order before a cruise, mostly so I don't feel terrible about like just eating an incredible amount of food while we're on our cruise. But losing weight is hard. Losing weight is hard. My, my kryptonite in, in losing weight is chocolate-covered pretzels. I don't know. Everybody has their own, their own kryptonite. Man, those things are good. But the, the only thing better than a, a chocolate-covered pretzel is a peanut butter-filled chocolate-covered pretzel. And I don't know who figured out how to make that magic happen, but I want to give that person a medal, and then I want to beat them with that medal, right? It's just like they're the most amazing things, but they are just brutal. They are so tempting. And uh, so, uh, especially like late at night, and you're like, oh, I could just have one. I could just have one little peanut butter-filled, chocolate-covered pretzel of joy. And it turns into 60, right? It just, it just happens, right? So, so I did what the only, the only thing a wise person would do. I just ate all the rest of them that we had in one sitting so they wouldn't be tempting to me anymore, right? So, solved it, right? So, but whatever, uh, whether it's peanut butter filled chocolate covered pretzels or something much more significant and consequential in our lives, see, the truth is that we all know what it's like to face temptation. We all know what that feels like. We all know the weightiness of that. But we, we all know what it feels like to give in to temptation, we know that the feeling of that short-term high that that gives and the satisfaction that gives and then that kind of long-term low that happens in light of that. And you see, the good news as we study God's word this morning in the book of Matthew, the good news is that like us, Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation. Jesus knows what it's like the, in the, to, to face the weight of that and, and, the, and the, the, the difficulties of that. But unlike us, Jesus does not know what it's like to give in to temptation. You see, and it's in looking to him, and it's looking in the person and the work of Jesus that we find the path that leads us out from under the weight of temptation, but we also find the path that leads us to life, find the path that leads to to true blessing and, and to obedience. And so the more I read the Bible, the more I study God's word, the more I am thankful for how timely and how timeless the truths of God's word are. And so I'm just looking forward uh, to just showing you how good news God's word is this morning as we study together. So like that, let's pray. And we'll dive in together to God's word. Jesus, we are so thankful for you. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your grace. And Jesus, we just come, God, with hearts that need you to be at work in us. And so, God, we, think, we are thankful that you are like us and you are unlike us. And so, God, we pray that you would meet us in our need for you this morning. God, I pray that you might fill me with your spirit so that as I teach and as I preach and as we study together that, God, our time would be fruitful and good and life-giving for us. And I pray that you'd cause us to have teachable and moldable hearts as we sit under the authority of your word. And, and so, God, we just come needing you to be at work in us. And so, God, we are grateful that you love to do that. And so we come with eager expectation to see what you'll do. In your good name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, with, uh, with those things in mind, let's, let's, uh, let's read our passage, and uh, we'll dive in together. We are in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And if you really are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written that he'll command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, and so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, I will, this I will give to you. And he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Then the devil left him and, he, and angels came and attended to him. So we see in our good news of our passage this morning, right, that Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation, but, but that he doesn't know what it's like. He doesn't know what it's like to give in. And so we see in him the, the way out of temptation. There's three things in our passage this morning, three things about temptation I want us to see. We see uh, first the reality of temptation. We see the nature of temptation. And lastly, we see the way to overcome temptation. So let's, let's dive in this morning. First, we see the reality of temptation. You see, temptation is real. It's not just a figment of our imagination. It's not just like some interpersonal monologue thing going on. Temptation is real. And we all face temptation. Even Jesus did. And this is just a side note this morning, but Jesus really actually faced temptation. There's not like an asterisk on the end of Jesus' temptation. It's like, oh, asterisk, he was God, doesn't really count, right? That's not what's going on. Jesus really faced temptation. And as we'll see later this morning as we study, it was his divinity, his, his godness, that didn't make facing temptation easier. In fact, if anything, that made it harder because there was more at stake and there was more that he had to give up, you see, you see, we all face temptation, and we are all going to continue to face temptation. We see at the end of the passage that Satan leaves, but he can just throw into the towel. Throughout, throughout the Gospels, we see the temptations that Jesus faces, his, that Jesus faces to, to, to follow his ways versus God's, God's ways. This wasn't the first time or the last time for Jesus to face temptation, and neither is it for you and I. You see, and as much as we would like to wish away the, the temptations that we face, the truth is, is that until you and I kick the bucket or until Jesus comes back, we are going to face temptation. That is just the nature of life. And so we see the reality of temptation, but we also see that temptation is real, but we see that the tempter is also real. See, in the passage, we see none other than the devil himself comes to tempt Jesus. It's important to see here that temptation is real, but that God is not the one doing the tempting here. You see, like we see in the passage, God allows us to be tempted, and he even uses our temptation to grow and mature us, but he is not the one doing the tempting. Satan is. And unfortunately, I think there's kind of two extremes that most people fall into when it comes to thinking about temptation and sin and that kind of stuff when it comes to spiritual forces, and I think two extremes that we kind of err on. And one is that some people way overemphasize it, Right? Every temptation, every bad thing that happens, every problem that's Satan's or demons or, or whatever. And the reality is, is that is just giving Satan way too much credit. You see, he is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. He, he, he is not everywhere at one time. 
He's not omnipresent. Only God is. He can only be in one place at one time. And he's probably got more important people to tempt than you, right? As much as you'd love to believe that it is Satan tempting you, right? He's probably got more important people. You see, sometimes people overemphasize it, and everything is a demonic something, and everything is the devil tempting us. And really what's going on most times is just our hearts. It's just the evil in our hearts and the desires of our hearts. But some people often underemphasize it. It's like all the wars, all, all of the economic problems that we face, it's, it, all, the, all, the, all the troubles in the world, it's just, just economics is the problem, or racism is the problem, or the ever-increasing pervasiveness of sexual violence and abuse. It's just, that's just an undereducation problem. We just need to kind of educate people know, to, to know more about what the costs are, what really is going on, or the epidemic of obesity. That's just a self-control problem. That's all it is. Okay? And I think to believe that there is no spiritual warfare going on is pretty naive. You see, Satan actually likes when we believe this, though, because ignorance serves his purposes incredibly well. You see, we like to believe that what we don't know can't hurt us. But the truth is that what we don't know absolutely can hurt us. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that there is an enemy whose goal is to kill and steal and destroy. 1 Peter says that he prowls around like a lion seeking to devour. You see, the reality is that there is a tempter. And that he is opposed to God and he is opposed to God's people. And he is actively opposed to it. But the truth is also that God is over and above the tempter. And all his forces. We see in the passage, right? The Spirit of God is the one who leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He's not surprised when the devil comes to tempt Jesus. Did you notice that? The Spirit's not like, oh man, I did not see that coming. No, like, you know exactly what was going on. The Spirit of God is not caught off guard by what happens to Jesus in the wilderness. You see, because God's authority is over and above all those things. And see, the the truth is that we don't need to be scared or afraid of the tempter or of of his minions or any of that, but we cannot afford to be naive either. You see, we can't afford to be naive about the reality of temptation and of the tempter, but also we can't afford to be naive about the, the true nature of temptation itself. You see, the passage shows us not just the reality of temptation, it shows us the, the nature of it. And first it talks about the when of the, the when or the timing of the nature of temptation. I think all of us know temptation often feels most, most common, it feels most fierce when we're tired, when we're weak, whether that's spiritually or physically or emotionally, whatever that is. We see that in the passage here. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, and, and, and it's not like a, a nice hike in the nature. Right? It's not like you're just going out to the nature trails and like having a nice hike. Like the, the place that Jesus is in is called the Jeshimon, which literally means the devastation. It's not a happy place, right? And the whole time he's been out there, he's been fasting. The only thing worse than camping is camping without food, right? That's the only thing that's worse than camping. And that's what's going on. You've just been in that wilderness, in a terrible, not even in nice trees, like just in the wilderness. He is incredibly weak. He's probably hating his life because camping is terrible. And he's starving. And that's when the tempter comes. That's when the tempter comes, which is why you should never go camping, okay? That's just a side point. Just keep that, put it in your back pocket, okay? Some things are just true. And so we see the tempter coming in Jesus' moment of weakness. And, and I think we all know that like, when we're weak, that, that, that often happens. 
But I think there's something else really important here that we need to see. You see, you see temptation doesn't only happen when we are weak. See, I think we realize that. We're, we're aware of that, that temptation comes in our weakness. But I think one of the things that we see here is that, is that temptation doesn't just come when we're weak. It also comes after times of, really, of, of, of strength as well. J.D. Greer, he's a, a pastor, he notes this. He says, spiritual highs are often followed by spiritual lows. Jesus has just come off this incredible high point of his baptism. Last week we saw literally the heavens open, the spirit of God descends, God, the voice of the Father like booms out like, this is my son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. That, like, that had to be amazing. Like That had to be fantastic. Greer goes on to say, See, whenever God does something great in your life, you can count on it that Satan will be right behind him trying to pull up the seeds that God has planted. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I often find that that is true. I often find that in those especially difficult seasons of ministry or, or those things that are just tough, like I'm aware of the, of the stakes that are at hand oftentimes in the midst of that. And so I'm prayerful about what's going on. And what I often find is that temptation often hits me the hardest, not in the midst of the thing I'm trying to do, but right after. Right after I've preached a sermon that was really hard and I was really working on and praying on, and it's often Mondays that are the hardest for me. You see, what often happens is we let our guard down. When you're on high alert, you know that there's danger around. The truth is, is that temptation and the danger of submitting to that, that that never fades. That's true all of the time. I just bring this up for two reasons. One, that so that you might grow in your awareness of the tactics of the tempter, right? So as we seek to honor the Lord and live in obedience to him. But, but two, and more importantly probably is this. I don't want you to doubt what God is doing in your heart and your life. In those moments of strength, if those are followed by moments of weakness, it can often feel like, was that real? What was happening there? That doesn't make any... What was going on there? And see, and the truth is, is that Jesus himself was tempted in incredibly difficult ways right after an incredible spiritual high. And so if that happens to you, you're not like a bad Christian, right? You're not like weak in general. It happened to Jesus as well, and it happens. You see, facing temptation is not the red flag in and of itself. In fact, what's probably a bigger red flag is if you feel like you never face temptation... That's probably a bigger red flag because it, what it probably means is that you're just going the same direction as temptation and you don't realize it. You see, the passage is showing us, it's showing us the reality of temptation and, and the, the nature of it when it comes to its timing, but it's also showing us the nature of temptation regarding its true source. You see, one of the most dangerous things that we can do when facing temptation is to identify the symptoms, but not the true source of it. You see, when doctors diagnose a disease, they start with the symptoms. The symptoms aren't the real problem, though. They're just signs. They, they're indicators of what's going on more deeply within the body. The same is true when it comes to temptation, right? It's a struggle that many people often have with pornography. That's not, lust is not the issue at the bottom of that. There's something deeper on a heart level going on underneath that. There's deeper heart things that are happening Proverbs 4.23 says it this way. It says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. You see, you see the, the obvious object of our temptation is rarely the real problem. It's rarely the real problem. Instead, what we need to do is learn to ask the deeper questions about the object of what the object of our temptation is revealing about the true source of our temptation. What's going on? What are the desires of our heart that are being lured with these things? 
You see, the way temptation works is that it tries to get our hearts to believe that something other than God and his words and his ways are true and right and good and will ultimately be satisfying and fulfilling and life-giving. And it does that either by presenting us with reasons that we should doubt God or by presenting us with something that appears to be better than him. You see, temptation, what it's doing is presenting us something to worship. It's presenting us something to to be the controlling influence in our lives other than God. And that is the definition of what idolatry is. You see, at the source of all temptation is really the idolatrous desires of our hearts. The things that we long for more than we long for God. The things that we think might satisfy and fulfill and give life more than he does. And if you've been around River City for very long, you know that one of the things we often talk about is the idea of source idols. Source idols are not something unique to River City, but it's, it's something that we found just really helpful in thinking about what's going on on a heart level. And four source idols that authors like Tim Keller and David Pallison and others write about is our power, comfort, control, and approval. And there's some great sermons on our sermon archive if you want to learn more about what's going on with those. But I just want to reference that because I think it's pretty safe to say that underneath all of the temptation that you and I face is hiding an invitation for our hearts to embrace one or more of these idolatrous desires, to allow the need for power or comfort or control or approval to be the thing that drives our life and drives our actions and drives our motivations. And so, so I just want us to keep that in mind as we take a look at the three ways that Jesus is tempted in our passage this morning, because we want to identify what, what is underneath that, what is really going on. And the first temptation we see in verse 3 Satan comes to Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus is obviously hungry, and so Satan says, make some bread for yourself. Just go for it. But eating when you are hungry is not a sin. There is no thou shalt not enjoy a sandwich verse, right? It's It's not in there. Jesus is not being forced to fast or something. So what, what is the nature of the temptation here? What, what's really going on? I always thought growing up, I always thought that this was about getting Jesus to either prove himself or doubt himself. But as I studied this week, one of the things that was just really helpful, all the commentaries read about this, they say, Satan's, Satan's comment, if you really are the son of God here, it's not about getting to Jesus to prove or doubt his identity. It's about getting to him to misuse his identity. It's about getting him to misuse his identity and his power and his privilege in his, in his own way, in his own time, for his own benefit. You see, Philippians 2 tells us that when Jesus left heaven and he became a man, he voluntarily surrendered the independent use of his divine attributes. Right? Later in the Gospels, we see that Jesus says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. You see, and so for Jesus here to use his power, to use his divinity... Outside of the Father's direction, that would have been rebellion. That would have been him to, to reject the mission that he had been sent on. And see, and so what Satan is really saying here is he's saying, you can't trust God to provide for you. He doesn't know what you really need. If he did, you wouldn't be hungry. You have the power. Just take things into your own hands. Just, just take control. You see, the temptation to give into the idol of control is about getting Jesus to doubt the Father's goodness and his provision and to instead, instead of humbly trusting and submitting to his will and his timing, to take things into his own hands, to take control of the situation himself. That's something none of us have ever wrestled with at all, ever, right? No, it's something we wrestle with all the time. Right? See, we, we are oftentimes tempted to doubt God's goodness and to doubt his provision. God... God, I really, I really 
you know, God, that I want a spouse. But that seems like it's not really happening right now. Let, let me just see what I can do to speed up that process a little bit. God, I really trust you to protect my kids. I trust you to protect my family. But I'm going to have like 39 layers of, of defense against that happening. And I'm going to use every herb and every oil known in the existence of man to make sure that there's no possible way that my kids could get sick or that danger could befall us, right? You see, we often, we often doubt God's goodness. We often doubt his provision. And we want to take things into our own hands, into, to be in control ourselves, to bring about our own good without trusting him. And it never works. And Jesus saw through that lie. And so Satan, he tries a second route. This time he even quotes the Bible. We see verse 6. Satan brings Jesus to a high spot. In verse 6 he says, If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written that he will command his angels concerning you, and he will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so Satan, what he's doing here is he's trying to get Jesus to test the Father. He's trying to... Get Jesus to test him. And, and throughout the Old Testament, purposefully testing God is always seen, is always communicated as just an absolute prideful, sinful rebellion. It is never good. It is never a good idea. And what we see the devil doing here is he's masking the, the seriousness of that rebellious doubt. He's masking it in an out-of-context, misapplied quote from Psalms 91. See, the passage that Satan is quoting here is, is about God protecting uh, protecting people from those who fall into danger, not those who dangerously fall. It's a, it's, there's difference going on there. You see, but there's something really more subversive at play here because, again, that, that if you really are the son of God, it's not about Satan getting Jesus to doubt his identity or, to, or that Satan is even doubting who Jesus is. Instead, this time, it's about getting him to doubt the father's love and the father's care for him. It's about getting him to doubt the father's approval of him. You see, one pastor knows it's like he's saying, if the father really cared about you, he wouldn't let you get hurt in a situation like this. So why don't, why don't you just try this? Toss yourself off. If he saves you, then you'll really know. Then you really know what he thinks about you. Then, you then, then you'll really know that what he said about you at your baptism, when he said he really loved you, then you'll know that that's really true. You see, we, we're tempted to doubt God's approval of us all the time as well, to test his things, Right? We often think, God, if you really loved me, God, that job that I want, that promotion that I want, like, wouldn't you give that to me? Wouldn't that just come to me? If you really loved me, wouldn't that happen? Right, we, we look for these signs to, to be the proof of what God has said about us. You see, when the only sign that we really should be looking for is through the cross. You see, and so Satan has tempted Jesus with, with control and with approval Lastly, he brings out the big guns of comfort. Verse 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all this I will give you. He said, if you will bow down and worship me. And at first we might think that Satan is appealing to the idol of power here with, with Jesus. But Jesus has already come to rightly rule and reign all things. So that's, that's not really what's going on in this situation. Instead, what's happening is that Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. He's offering him a shortcut. He's saying, you can get glory, but you can do it without suffering. Here's the shortcut I'm offering you. You don't need to go through all those incredibly frustrating years of ministry with those knucklehead disciples. You don't need to go through all the misunderstanding and all the rejection that you're going to face. You don't need to go through that. You don't need to go through the torture of the cross. You just don't need to do it. I have a shortcut for you. Here's the easy way out. 
See, like us, Jesus is tempted to take the easy way out. He is tempted by the lure of comfort. He is tempted by the escape from stress and pressure and the hard things in life. He's tempted to believe that that will be the thing that gives life and satisfies, that the shortcut really works. But the truth is that there are no shortcuts to obedience with God. And it was a lie, and it still is a lie. And it's a lie that could not fulfill on the promise that Satan said it could. And it's a lie that if followed would have forfeited the very reason Jesus came, as we saw in Matthew 2, to save his people from their sin. You see, and that brings us to our last point. You see, we see the way to overcome temptation. You see, in our passage this morning, we've seen the reality of temptation. We have seen the nature of temptation. But what I want to do with our last few minutes together this morning is I want to help us to see why the way that Jesus overcomes these temptations, it gives you and I the ability to overcome temptation as well. And this is so important to see. You see, Jesus, first, he models for us how we are to fight temptation he models for us how we are to, to fight temptation. And unfortunately, what, may too, what way too many people have taught is that the way that you fight temptation is just by knowing or quoting Bible verses. It's like kind of like a, it's like a Harry Potter spell duel, right? And Satan throws a temptation at you, and you're like, Whatcha! John 3.16, I got you, right? And he's like, oh, I got something else. Well, bam, and you're like, Revelations 1.9, whatcha! All right, I got you on the run, buddy. That's not how it works, right? That's, that's, not, that's not really how it works. Besides the fact that I've ruined that idea for you now with that incredible analogy, I can guarantee you the reason why it doesn't work is because the devil knows more verses than you do. I can guarantee you he knows more than you do. And as we saw in the second temptation, he knows them backwards and forwards. He knows them how to use them deliberately and intentionally out of context. You see, Satan uses God's word to tempt us into sin. And then when we fail, he uses it to condemn us for our failures. You see, just knowing God's word is, that's not going to, that's not going to be, that's not the silver bullet. You see, the truth is that we, we do need to know what the Bible says. We do need to know the truths of God's word. We need to know the truths of scripture. But knowledge of the Bible alone isn't the way that Jesus overcame temptation, and it's not the way that we're going to overcome it either. You see, the way that we fight temptation is not by knowing what the Bible says, it's by believing what the Bible says. And that only happens by the power of the Spirit of God doing it in us. You see, the passage begins with the Spirit of God leading Jesus into the wilderness. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God is the one who changes our hearts, who draws us towards God, who causes us to believe the truths of God's Word and and to live in light of Him. He's the one who empowers us to do all of that kind of thing. You see, the battlefield that we are on in 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 the battle of temptation, it's not fought on the battlefield, it's not knowledge. The battlefield is not effort. See, the battlefield that we fight the battles of temptation on is the battle of belief. You see, and throughout this passage, what we see is Jesus is not just quoting Scripture. What he's doing is he's choosing by the power of the Spirit to believe the truth of God's Word instead of the lies of the tempter. He is choosing by the power of the Spirit of God to believe the truths of God's word instead of the lies. You see, verse 3, Satan tempts Jesus to doubt the Father's goodness and his provision and and to instead of humbly trusting and submitting to his will and, and to his purposes and to his timing, to take things into his own hands, to take control himself. And Jesus responds in verse 4 by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and he says, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, the verse that he's quoting is in reference to God's provision of manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, he's saying, I see what's going on here. 
I see past the lie here. I see, I see through what is happening here, and I want to reject that. Instead, what, what I really need is what is really true is that God's word and history proves that what really sustains and what really gives life is him and his word. And what I truly need is his provision, not something I make for myself. See, he has proven that he both knows what we need, and he has proven that he gives what we need. I don't need to be in control. I can trust God to be good. I can trust him to provide for what I need in his time, in his ways. We see that happening at the end, right? The angels come and they attend to Jesus. And they meet him in his knees, and that's the Father's will and the Father's timing. Verse 6, Satan tempts Jesus to put God to the test in, in an act of rebellious doubt of God's approval of him. Jesus responds in verse 7 by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, and, which is plain and true, but the context of that quote really helps to clarify the depth of Jesus' response for us. We see, see what's going on. That verse is in reference to a time when the Israelites had tested God by refusing to believe, refusing to accept that, that he was really amongst them, that he was really with them until he did some miraculous sign. And so Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to put God to the test, and I do not need to. You see, God had already proved that he was with the Israelites. The plagues, walking through an ocean, a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. God had proved he was with them. They did not need another sign. And Jesus is saying, I don't need to, God to prove his love for me. I know what is true. He proved that he showed that in, his, in my baptism when he said who I was in him. I'm not going to test that. I see in verse 9, Satan offers Jesus a comfortable yet costly shortcut to glory. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, again, quoting in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Only one is worthy of worship, and the one who redeemed Israel from Egypt, the Lord God himself, is the only one. Worshiping you or comfort will never give what, it's, what you say it can, and even if it could, it is not as good as what God gives. The cost is far too high. It is not worth it. You see, and so over and over again, what we see Jesus doing is not just quoting Scripture, he's, but he's choosing by the power of the Spirit of God to believe what is true to believe what is true as God has said in his word and, and to appropriate and live in light of those truths. You see, the most important, but, but if we stopped there, right? If, if, we, if we stopped at just seeing the, Jesus' model for fighting temptation, then we would miss really the good news of the gospel in our passage this morning. We would miss it altogether. You see, the most important thing that we learn from our pastors this morning is not the reality of temptation. It is not the nature of temptation. It's not, even, it's not even the way to overcome temptation. Rather, what we see, the most important thing that we learn from our pastors this morning is that Jesus overcame temptation for you. He's not just your model. Jesus overcame it for you. You see, throughout the passage, Jesus quotes from a few specific chapters of Deuteronomy, which are all referring to Israelites' time of testing in the wilderness. And that is not an accident because just as the Israelites were led by God into the wilderness and tested, so was Jesus. And what Matthew is showing us here in his gospel is that in all the ways that we fail, in all the ways that in our testing we do not obey, that we give up, that we give in, Jesus did not. 
You see, Israel failed to trust God when tested with hunger, and Jesus, instead, Jesus depends completely on God. Israel put God to the test, but Jesus refuses to do it. Israel turned to idolatry, but Jesus refuses to worship anything but God. You see, Jesus is not just our perfect model, he is our perfect substitute. We saw last week how in Jesus' baptism, he begins his ministry of substitution, and here in the wilderness, he continues it. You see, he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, and he died the death that you and I were supposed to die, that we deserved to die, that we were condemned to die, so that through him, that in him, we might be able to find the life and the power to overcome sin that we could never have apart from. You see, Jesus never gave in to temptation, but you and I, we do all the time. And if Jesus is just your model, if he just shows you the way out, if he's just your example, then you will, be, you will inevitably be, be crushed under the weight of your inability to imitate him. That will be crushing for you. You see, because Jesus, but if Jesus is your substitute... If you see him not just as your model, but as also as your substitute, then when you fail, instead of being condemned, you get to rejoice in him. And what that does is it fuels a a passionate response to Jesus, and it fuels a, a passionate obedience and a pursuit of him and his ways. You see, when we fail, if Jesus is just your model, all the verses that you memorized, they're just gonna be a condemnation that Satan uses against you that you did not measure up to and that you did not obey. But if when you fail, if Jesus is the one you treasure and rejoice in because he is your substitute, if he's the one that you treasure because he was the one who was tempted just as you were but who obeyed perfectly for you, oh, then your heart will be filled with a love for him that grows in magnitude, that grows in fervor. What happens is instead of running from him in guilt and shame when you fail and give in to temptation, you'll be able to run to him because he's the one that has the power you actually need to overcome temptation in the first place. You see, Hebrews 4, chapter 4, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16 reads this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly then to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, emphasize, to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Verse 16 goes on, Then let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you see the good news about the gospel in our passage this morning? You see, religion says that Jesus is your model. Just do your best to imitate him, and that will crush your soul. But the gospel says that Jesus is your model. He does show you the way out. But Jesus is more than that. He is your substitute who has gotten out for you. And it's his power by faith that you receive that you might live in light of who he is. That's the good news of the gospel. That's wildly different than the truths of religiosity. You see, the gospel is good news for our hearts because the gospel gives us power in the midst of our, our, it gives us the ability to actually obey and to live in light of the calling that God has given us to live. You see, we need the truths of the gospel. You see, Jesus cannot just be our model, he must be our substitute. You see, and that's what we remember and that's what we celebrate every week when we take communion. We're remembering and we're celebrating is that the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body, of his blood, 
which were broken and shed for us as he lived the life that you and I should have lived. That he died the death that our mutinous, rebellious sin deserved to die. And that in dying, he paid the penalty only he could pay so that you and I could be forgiven and accepted by God and that we might be set free from the power of sin and actually given the power to live in the light of righteousness. You see, and what we're doing when we take communion is we are remembering and we are proclaiming those truths. We're remembering who we are in Christ and who he has, what he has done for us and how that has reoriented and changed everything that is true about who we are. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. It is an outward sign. It's a symbolic way that we remember what Jesus has done for us. It's a way that we remember who we are in him. And so this morning, if you have trusted Jesus and if you have believed the gospel, if he is not just your model, but if, he, if you believe him to be your substitute as well, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as an act of celebration and life and joy. You see, there are two tables in the back of the room, one on the left and one on the right. And during our time of worship, you go back as you feel led and you dip the bread in the juice and that's how you take communion here. And you don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. You see, if Jesus is just your model, communion is not, you're not ready for it yet. But if Jesus is your substitute... If he is the one who you have put your hope in, that that he has lived the life you should have lived, that he died the death that your sin deserved to die, and that he in life gives it to you by faith, then go back, take communion, do it as a sign of, just do it in joy. Let it be a celebration. Let it be something that is life-giving and fruitful, that reminds you of all that Jesus has done for you, that reminds you of who he has said that you are. And as, as you go talk with God, ask him to keep showing you the source of the temptation that you are fighting. Ask him to give your, the eyes of your heart the ability to see the things that are enticing you. What, what's at the root of those? How might power or control or approval or comfort, how might those be these root desires that are really driving the actions and attitudes and behavior? How might those be the things that are really at the root of the things that you are tempted with? Ask him to give you eyes to see those things. But more than that, ask him to empower you by his spirit to believe what is true. To believe the truths that God is the one who gives life. That he's the one who satisfies. That his ways, that his timing is true and right and good. That he provides all that we need. Ask him to show you the truth of who he is and all that he has done. In the midst of the doubts that the tempter brings to your feet, ask the Spirit of God to remind you what is true. And ask him to empower you to believe what is true. And ask him as well to help you rejoice in Jesus who is your substitute. You see, when you fail... As you will, there will be times. Ask the Spirit of God to help you to rejoice and enjoy and treasure Jesus who has lived the life you should have lived, who did it enjoy pursuing you, running after you so that you might have life in him. The only way you get life is in him. There is no shortcuts. There are no other ways. It's just him. And the life that Jesus offers is the life you are longing for. So come to him that you might find rest and life and joy and peace. Ask him by the power of his spirit to, to empower you to believe what is true and live in light of it. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we, we come before you this morning, God, with, with hearts that really need, God, the, your truth to be, to be by the power of your spirit sunk deep into our hearts. God, and we just confess that the battlefield of temptation that we are fighting on is not a battlefield of effort or knowledge. God, it is a battlefield of belief, and it's one that we are woefully inadequate to fight. Woefully inadequate to fight alone. But God, we are so grateful that you have sent your spirit so that we might know what is true. We might believe what is true. We might live in light of what is true. And so God, we just say we, we cannot live in light of that without you by your spirit. Rooting those things deep into our hearts. God, help us, give us eyes to see what's really underneath our temptation. Give us eyes to see the tactics that Satan uses and the, the wickedness of our hearts, what we believe will give life that, that won't. God, help us see that, but more than anything, help us see the truth of who you are. The truth of what you say gives life and satisfies and fulfills. Cause us by your spirit to believe those things. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our substitute. That you don't just show us the way out, but you get out for us. God, we need you. We cannot do it on your own. Thankful that you are, that you have come. Either you have come for us, to obey for us, so that in you we might have the power to obey you. We love you, Jesus. Thanks that you have loved us first and come after us. We needed that.